go to the middle section of Psalm 19. This is about God's Word, Scripture. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad. The command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinance of the Lord, ordinances of the Lord are reliable and altogether righteous. They are more desirable than gold, than an abundance of pure gold. Let me run that by you again. God's word is more valuable than gold and sweeter than honey, which comes from the honeycomb. In addition, your servant is warned by them. There is great reward in keeping them. Father, we come to the scriptures today to be taught, to be washed, to be equipped to be helped, to be encouraged, to be corrected. And we thank you that in one meeting at one time, you can be doing all of those things because what I say and the scriptures I read will touch and affect different people in different ways. And that is your manifold wisdom at work as you speak to each of your children and feed them and help them or teach them or correct them as you see is best for them today. We open our hearts to you, Lord. Let the entrance of your word bring light to our hearts, to our souls, we pray. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Weeks ago, when we were only halfway through Thessalonians, the Lord reminded me of the book of Daniel. Um, and he stirred me to begin to prepare it. So I've been writing on the book of Daniel for the last few weeks as well as preaching on Thessalonians. Daniel is a prophetic book, but it also gives us historical narrative about this man and his comrades. In fact, let me just tell you something a little bit interesting. Daniel is not presented to us in chronological order. What you have is chapters 1 to 6, you've got the events of Daniel's life and him interpreting dreams and writings on wall. And then chapters 7 to 12, you've got the prophecies of Daniel himself, Daniel as the prophet. But when you put them in chronological order, they move around a bit. Uh, It's a prophetic book. It gives us historical narrative about this man and his comrades. Along the way, I will explain the prophetic visions of Daniel, but that is not my main focus in coming to this book. It is Daniel and how we live like Daniel. We're going to consider Daniel and his friends who were taken as just teenagers from their home in Jerusalem, in Judah, to Babylon, to a foreign land, and had to live for God in a pagan, godless world. But God gave them success in that world, though they never compromised with it. That's our situation today. How do we live for God in a godless world? I don't believe we do live in a Christian society. I don't know if you think we do, but uh, was the UK ever a Christian society? Well, yes and no. Our laws once followed biblical values very closely. But from the mid-20th century have moved further and further away from God's laws and principles. So, 
Just a few instances. The unborn child is not safe in in a mother's womb. Marriage is not honoured biblically. Family life is derided and easily divided. There is, I believe, an anti-Christian bias in our media and in our governmental organisations. And in the general behaviour of our society, we've lost Christian values. We've lost all modesty and all shame. We celebrate being laddish and loutish, and that's including the girls, the women. Bad behaviour is celebrated and rewarded in any number of reality shows on TV. By the way, that's our modern-day gladiators in the Colosseum. The cheap entertainment for the, for the, the masses. <clears throat> it's not that such things haven't always been around, but once society knew such things to be wrong, they were unchristian and understood that they were sin, that those things fell short of the glory of God. Sin is not new, but it's now acceptable and celebrated. Karen and I switched on last night and she caught the end of the, the last night of the proms. Guess what? It was a gay pride event. Rainbow flags everywhere. We went, what? God. Everything just gets twisted around. Being modern and connected and having IT and media doesn't improve us one bit. We have more slicker ways to publish lies and filth. Much of the internet is an open sewer. Our political system now has all the respect and honour of a dogfight. Let me give you a bit of history. The English Puritans of the mid-1500s, the late 1600s, are some of my heroes. There were no finer theologians, saving maybe John Calvin and Francis Turretin who were French. But English-speaking theologians, there were none finer than those Englishmen, and a few Scotsmen as well, of the 1500s to the 1600s. But some of them are mistaken in this way. They thought that if you got Christian government and Christian laws, that would make a Christian society. To this day, UK parliamentarians still think that you can solve any problem by passing a law. (laughs) Have you noticed that? I've told two MPs running in Harlow now, you don't change the world by passing laws, mate. It doesn't work like that. Unless you can change people, you can pass all the laws you jolly well like. It doesn't change anything. In the US, many Christians are actively working to take over the government. Some of them think they've got their man in the White House now. (gasps) Really? (laughs) This thing about Christian society was in part what the Civil War was about and why Cromwell led the Parliament against a king and why that king, Charles, was beheaded. But other Puritans understood that it's only through the gospel working through a nation, like yeast through a lump of dough, like a little seed that grows to be a big tree, that the truly Christian society can come about. It's only by changed people that you change a society. They pursued a renewal of the church, the preaching of the gospel, and lived devout, prayerful, upright lives. And their opponents called them mockingly Puritans. But that's how the name Christian started as well, you know. The opponents of the, of the followers of Jesus called them, oh, you're the little Christ, you're Christians. The renewal of the church in those decades was resisted by the church government and the church, the government, sorry, and the church authorities. And in, let me give you a bit of history. In 1662, Puritan pastors and preachers, that's gospel pastors and preachers, were ejected from the Church of England. 
all over the country. They lost their livings. They were driven out of their churches in 1662. In London, in six, and in the southeast particularly, in 1665, God allowed a great plague to wipe out thousands and thousands of people across England. And in 1666, the Great Fire of London burned down all of those churches in London that had ejected and rejected the gospel. Those are the churches that Wren and others rebuilt, but they burnt down, I believe, as part of God outworking his judgment against the nation that had rejected the gospel. Now, God in his mercy raised up gospel preachers in the 1700s, Whitfield, the Wesleys, and so on, and there was another renewal, another awakening. But think about those 1660s. One Puritan commented in those late 1660s that England had then been, but within a quarter century, 25 years, of becoming a thoroughly Christian nation. It had come close and then had been snatched away. All of that is to say, we once had an official Christian values in our society. But that is largely gone. We once knew what was good and what was not based upon understanding and applying scripture, but that has largely gone. We've had great awakenings, gospel awakenings in the, the times in our nation in the past, since the Puritan era, 1700s, and in the 1800s with, with, with uh, uh, great gospel preachers like um, Spurgeon in London and good old Bishop Ryle, an Anglican bishop of Liverpool. Tremendous gospel preachers. But those days are in the past. Lord grant us another such awakening, or call it a revival if you want. Some call our modern age the post-Christian world. But I don't want to completely accept that description, for that would tend to leave us without hope of change, of renewal, of awakening. That this nation will again feel the wind of the Holy Spirit, not just bringing renewal to some Christians and churches, but to a united kingdom of nations across a whole population of the British Isles. But we right now do not live in a Christian society. This is not Christendom. This is not Jerusalem. This is not Zion. And you can sing until we build Jerusalem in this green and present land until you go green in the face. But it's not now. It's not happening now. We live in our modern equivalent of Babylon. So today we go to Daniel and his friends to find examples and wisdom for how to live for God in this godless world. Let me give you the background. We haven't even got into Daniel 1 verse 1 yet. But never mind. The background is this. The kingdom of Judah had been in decline for a very long time. Why? Because all of Israel, all 10 12 tribes, had been rebellious against the Lord. Moses prophesied it before he died. You will all turn your backs to him. Like a stiff-necked cow, you'll pull against his yoke. Finally, what the Lord had declared centuries before, through Moses even, began to happen. And first of all, the northern kingdom broke away from the kingdom of Judah, Solomon's son. And then the northern kingdom of Judah was taken away into captivity by the Assyrians in 722 BC. The ten tribes were lost. There were some remnants of those ten tribes, but as tribal groups, they were lost from Israel. And finally, almost a, well, 100 or so years later, it was time for judgment to come upon Judah. The prophets had declared the Lord would bring judgment against Jerusalem and Judah that the city would be destroyed along with the temple there. And Jeremiah is prophesying exactly that and lived through those days. And he's a contemporary of Daniel and of Ezekiel. Jeremiah was in Jerusalem prophesying that it was getting closer and closer and closer and it came and he lived through it. 
Daniel and later Ezekiel were taken away from Jerusalem by the Babylonians before those days were fulfilled. So both Daniel and Ezekiel had to hear in captivity of the day when Jerusalem had been destroyed and the temple had been burned down. In 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar attacked Jerusalem. He was the crown prince of Babylon. His father, Nabopolassar, that's quite a mouthful, isn't it? had founded a new Babylonian empire in 626 BC. We call it the new Babylonian empire because there was one before it. Did anybody know about the, the first Babylon or Babel? Where's that? Genesis. Genesis 10 and 11. Its king was named Nimrod and they built a tower to reach to heaven. Do you remember? And how did God confuse them? He gave them different languages to speak and they were divided from one another. That was the first Babylonian empire, the first Babylonian kingdom. And it included just about all of humanity. And it was led by one who was an upstart. That's what it means when it says he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. He was a rebellious king called Nimrod. By the way, there's another Babylon in Scripture. It's in 1 Peter and Revelation. You need to get the notes and look at the footnote to figure out that one. So, for now, the Nebuchadnezzar's attacking Jerusalem, but as he's doing it, he hears that his father has died. And, you know, becoming king isn't automatic in those times. Someone else is going to have a go. So he quickly tidies up what he's doing in Jerusalem and races back to claim the throne in Babylon. So they raided and, 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 and reduced Jerusalem and the authorities there rather than overthrew the whole kingdom. And one of their policies was to remove the noble and skilled people and leave a place weakened. So Daniel and his friends, who were probably of the royal and the upper class families in Jerusalem, were taken away in that cull as young men, aged just in their teens, 14, 15, some say 16, to, to Babylon. And it was part of Babylonian policy, and later the Persians, to get their conquered people to assimilate, to mix, to lose their ethnic and cultural and religious identity and become subjects of the new order. Where are the people now? So Daniel and others no longer lived in Jerusalem. The life they had known had gone. They'd been taken from their families. They'd been taken from their culture. They no longer had the temple rituals. No priests served them now. They were not now governed by the Jewish laws, but by the laws of Babylon. And they may even been castrated, made eunuchs to serve in the royal court. It was a, certainly there are eunuchs in this story. What were they to do? What were Daniel and three friends to do? They set themselves to faithfully serve the Lord, Yahweh, the Most High, the Eternal, the Living God, in a pagan world. We know that Daniel prayed. And as he prayed, the Lord gave him prophetic insights and revelation. We know that Daniel and his friends at times chose to resist and refuse to conform to the ways and the laws of that society. But despite their circumstances, these men became men of influence. Daniel became another Joseph. It's like a rerun of the Joseph story in a way, in some ways. A Hebrew youth taken into captivity who rises to become prime minister of the kingdom. Daniel served three kings named in this book and perhaps four or five altogether, one after another. When the empire of the Babylonians fell and the empire of the Persians took over, Daniel's found serving the next emperor, even though he's a Persian. The first of those kings, Nebuchadnezzar, even in chapter 4, comes to faith in Daniel's God. 
He gets converted. The pagan king. Anyway, let's go to Daniel 1. Now I'm going to read you chunks of scripture and then talk about them, okay? I'm not going to put a lot up on the screen. Daniel 1. Setting the scene. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave, notice that, the Lord gave. This was God's determined plan. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the articles of the house of God, some of the expensive gold, silver things there. And Nebuchadnezzar carried them into the land of Shinar, which is to say Babylon, to the house of his God, and he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Twice in verse 2 there we read his God, Nebuchadnezzar's God. He took some of the temples from the house of God to the house of his God. Those vessels, by the way, reappear 70 years later at Belshazzar's feast. We'll come back to that another time. But what we'll see in this book is this. Nebuchadnezzar and his friends aren't fighting Nebuchadnezzar. They're having to deal with Nebuchadnezzar's God. Then we come to Daniel and his friends. Daniel 1, verse 3 to verse 7. Daniel, sorry, the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking. They had to be good-looking men as well. (laughs) That's the way they were as well. In all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans, which is to say also the Babylonians, the Babylonians. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so at the end of that time they might serve the king. Now from among those of the sons of Judah taken were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Daniel and another three Hebrew youths then were selected from among the exiles and brought to the royal court. They were chosen to serve the king, given pagan names to Babylonize them. Their names honoured Yahweh. They honoured the Lord. So they gave them names that honoured the Babylonian gods instead to Babylonize them. To paraphrase John Calvin, the design of the king was to remove these young men from their being among the Lord's people and make them his people. That's a devilish plot that continues to this day. To remove us from being amongst the Lord's people and make us more like those people. They were to be trained to join the king's counsellors. Kings in those days surround themselves with scholars, thinkers, advisors, and of course being pagans with magicians and soothsayers as well. As their training and living arrangements were being put together, Daniel faced a problem, which was this, the king's meat and wine. Let's read it, Daniel 8. Daniel 1 verse 8 to 10. Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies 
nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs, just read about him, Ashpenaz, that he might not defile himself. Notice that phrase. That he might not defile himself. It, it would, what he was being asked to do was to Daniel unclean, and it would make him unclean, and he did not want to do it. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear the, my lord the king has appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young man your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. In other words, he'd have my head off. Daniel would not defile himself. Daniel understood where they were very clearly. They were in Babylon. But he also understood who they were, the four of them. They were the people of God. To, to live for God in a godless world, we need to understand where we are, what the world is, what this society is. And not wish it was something else, but recognize it. This is where we are. But then, secondly, we must understand who we are. We are the children of God. We are lights in a dark place. It's clear that among these four young men, Daniel was the leader. He made a personal decision not to eat the king's food or drink his wine, but the others joined him. They accepted his wisdom and followed his example. It's interesting, later on, when, when Daniel's asked to kind of take over the provinces, he says, why don't you send those three to do the provinces and I'll stay here. I think even then he thought, they're better off together, those three. You know, they're not so strong on their own, so <laughs> let them, let them stick, out, stick together. Why, why did they not want to eat and drink what was provided? The answer is this, because the meat and the drink had been offered to idols. What came to the plate had already been to the temple and through a pagan ritual. And for that reason, they did not want to eat that meat or drink that wine. Their grievance with the king was with his false gods. Remember, Paul wrote, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. This was not a struggle with Nebuchadnezzar, but with his pagan religion, his service to his God. Daniel would go on to work very well and serve well Nebuchadnezzar, but Daniel refused to serve Nebuchadnezzar's God. Daniel made a decision not to defile himself. And uh, this thing about eating meat offered to idols didn't go away. It's current in the New Testament and written about there. Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8 and 10. And I've given you a note when you look at it about how we handle that. And it's interesting there that the way that Paul argues it is the person we think is weak in faith, Paul says is the one who's strong in faith, and the one who one who's, we think would be strong in faith is the one who's weak in faith. You're easily offended by things that have such as a paganism. You need stronger brothers to help you. Anyway, Paul, sorry, Daniel approached, oh, let me just t say this, sorry. We should know what right and wrong. We should know it from Scripture and we should know it by a conscience that has been tuned into these things. There may be things that we don't know and feel to be wrong, but as we go on in the Christian walk, the sanctifying Holy Spirit will bring those to our attention. There'll be a time of consideration and cleansing and change about those things. But there is a cost for keeping good conscience and a clear heart. But confident faith is much more valuable 
than what you lose by keeping good conscience. Knowing you can be confident in faith, your conscience doesn't accuse you, is much more valuable than anything you might lose in this world by standing up for conscience. Daniel approached Ashpenaz, the chief of the eunuchs, asked he might be excused from eating the meat and wine. Now, I want you to notice this, that Daniel, in approaching that man, was not rude, aggressive, contemptuous, or critical. He didn't condemn the king or the others. He simply asked to be allowed to be different and to follow his convictions. Sorry, I wanted to do something. Got them in the wrong order. Let me say this to you. It's not our job to criticize and condemn others. It's ours to refuse to conform to this godless world. I'm not criticizing you, but that isn't for me. And I claim the right to be different and not be the same and not do the same. But we can do that without being arrogant or aggressive. E.J. Young, in his commentary, says, our devotion must not serve as a cloak for rudeness or fanaticism. You know, I mean, people can, get, we can act so superior. Oh, I don't do that. It's called holier than thou, isn't it, that kind of attitude? Kill it. Kill it. Respectfully, courteously, we say, excuse me, but I claim the right to be different and not conform. We're to respect, honor others. We're not to act with arrogance or aggression, simply to stand upon our right to be different because we serve the Lord. So, did Daniel get through with Ashpenaz? No. Oh, I can't do that for you, mate. I'll let you have my head off. Sorry, chap. So, what did Daniel do? Did he give up? Some of you, do you know the story? Some of us haven't even noticed this before. Daniel tries again. And he doesn't talk to Ashpenaz, he talks to the guy who brings the food. To a steward. Doesn't even get a name. Here it is, Daniel 11. Daniel approaches the steward and asks him to risk a 10-day trial, serving the money, vegetables and fruit. By the way, this is not a biblical uh, foundation for arguing for vegetarianism or veganism. All right? That's your personal choice, you're very welcome to. Daniel 11. So, Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. He's asking the steward to take a personal risk here. Sneaky. Yeah? It's kind of being sneaked under the door. You know, just don't bring us the meat and the wine, just bring us fruit and vegetables. Let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. As, as you see fit to deal with your servants. In other words, if it doesn't work out, we'll do whatever you say. So he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. Now let me just stop there for a moment. I honestly believe fully that Daniel prayed before he spoke to the chief of the eunuchs. That Daniel prayed before he spoke to the steward. And now as they start to serve them fruit and vegetables for 10 days, and water to drink. Daniel's praying, we'd better come out of this looking good, Lord, please. Yeah? 
We've got to look better than the rest. That's the, I just said that to the Lord. You please, you've got to do this for us. You've got to help us here. Verse 15. At the end of 10 days, their features appeared better and fatter even in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. So the steward took away their portion of delicacies and wine and from then on gave them vegetables. Notice this, Daniel did not give up. He did not accept the refusal. He did not take no for an answer. He almost certainly prayed and then pressed in again, taking a different approach. The Lord Jesus taught us about persistence. Keep on going in faith and in prayer. And our response to an apparent refusal should not be, oh, all right, I'll go away. Like me standing at the, the visa place on Thursday. It's no, I'll be back. Yeah? I'll try another day, another way. I'll find a new answer. I'll get some more wisdom from God. And maybe the 10 die trial was something that the Holy Spirit planted in Daniel's thoughts in his heart. Ask him this. So he went with it. All right? I'll try another day, another way. That's exactly what Daniel did. And the steward agreed to risk the 10-day trial. When the examination was made, they were more healthy than the others. I'm not sure I want to be fatter than the others, but never mind. We can only imagine how much of that was the blessing of God and not just the healthy diet. So Daniel and his friends were allowed to follow their chosen diet the rest of their lives. But something happened there that was much more important than their change of diet. Daniel and his friends found a new or continued to build a way of life. Honouring God, praying and getting the help of God, even in the centre of a godless society. They'd throw themselves on the Lord and the Lord had helped them. From now on, their lives were built upon faith in the Lord, seeking Him in prayer, receiving His answers. This was the beginning of their stand as servants, firstly of the Lord and then of whatever came. They came to the end of the training. Daniel 1 verse 17 to 21. This is, ends the chapter. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. Notice this. It's not, they were smart dudes. God gave them knowledge and wisdom. And Daniel, more than the, the other three, specifically had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now that's a work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, those are gifts of the Spirit. Now at the end of the days, when the king had said, this is the three years I've done now, and Daniel is probably 18, 19, they were that young. <laughs> 18, 19, when they'd finished their training. At the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king interviewed them. And among them all, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. And so Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus. That's, that's, that's a pointer to a long way ahead, by the way, that he'll be, he'll be in his 80s by then. 
Three years of training went and the time came for these young men to be assessed. Daniel and his friends excelled. They were ten times better than the pagans. And Daniel and his friends would have had everything taught to them. Think about this. They'd been taught every bit of Babylonian philosophy and science and magic and whatever else. And they had to filter it and choose to accept or reject what they were being taught as teenagers. That's why I often am praying for our young people because we can't rescue them from this world. We have to pray for them to be kept through this world. That's exactly how Jesus prayed in John 17 for his disciples and for the church. Lord, I don't pray you to take them out of the world, but keep them, preserve them because they have to deal with what's thrown at them. And I can't, keep, I can't save them from that, but I can pray for them in it. As Jesus does. So they, they, they had to filter those things. But from their teens, from being youngsters, they contended for faith, for conscience, for obedience to the Lord. So pray for young people that they will practice discernment as they go through their studies. They need to know all that the world thinks, but they need to disagree with it and follow the scriptures and godly conscience when they, when they, when they need to. and Stand firm in those things. So as these young men continued to be faithful to the Lord, God gave them knowledge and wisdom and skill. Later, Daniel personally received visions and he's listed amongst God's prophets. There's a, there's a little lesson going on here. It's one that Jesus talked about. The Lord gives more to those who hold on to and use what he's already given them. What he's already given you, if you'll hold on to it and use it and be faithful, he'll give you more. How many can say amen to that? You understand that's true? Jesus said, whoever has to him, more will be given. And he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, it's not that he was never given anything. He didn't keep hold of it. He didn't use it. It almost fell through his fingers. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. Jesus says that twice in Matthew, once in Mark, once in Luke. And I tell you, the, the Holy Spirit gave gifts to Daniel. The gifts of the Holy Spirit did not all start at Pentecost. The only two that probably did start at Pentecost were these two unique new gifts of speaking in tongues and interpretation of such tongues. But the other gifts we read about in the New Testament have examples in the Old Testament. Prophetic people were moved by the Spirit and did those things. Discerning spirits... Uh, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, interpretation of dreams. These the revelations of the Spirit were at work. The Holy Spirit was at work through faithful and obedient right through the Old Covenant, even before the coming of the Lord Jesus. Yet, get this, folks. Hebrews reminds us that what we have, the knowledge, the understanding, the revelation, the covenant, the Savior, the living presence of our living Jesus that we have is far more than those Old Covenant people ever had. Are you ashamed now? <laughs> we have far more and we don't do so well. There's some of these wonderful saints. And yet, that's the truth of Scripture, folks. We have less than they had. Sorry, we have far more than they had. They had less than we had. And yet they did so well because they were faithful with what they had. One of you can succeed with the Lord's help in a godless world without selling out to that world. That's the lesson of Daniel and his friends. You can succeed without selling out. 
Daniel came to prominence not by serving the king's God. He served the king, but not the king's God. But by serving his God. And if that hadn't worked out, he would rather have not succeeded than have compromised. Do you understand? He didn't serve the Lord so as to obtain that career. If he'd lost that, he would still have served the Lord. Phil Moore, who years ago when I used to watch Twitter, which I don't nowadays, day by day as he read through Daniel, he wrote a little Twitter when they, were, when they really were just short and, and I saved them all. They were really good. Phil Moore, he was a New Frontiers pastor in South London, I knew. He says, Daniel tells us that compromising your faith at work to get promoted is foolish. Let me say that again. Compromising your faith at work to get promoted is foolish. If you take a stand for God at work, he will manage your career. And I want to say this. Every stand for conscience makes us stronger. Every compromise makes us weaker. The devil doesn't need to cut us down at one stroke if he can whittle us away with small cuts. Daniel held high office on the reigns of at least Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar and Darius, who was governor under Sirius. Yet his highest calling, he knew this, was not to be their servant, but God's servant. And there's no, it's not pride and arrogance, it's just I know what matters more, to serve my God. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, Jeremiah was prophesying the judgment of God was approaching on Jerusalem, the temple and Judah. We'll pick up in coming weeks. Tomorrow, most of us, this is an application now, and then we'll break bread. Tomorrow, most of us must go to our workplace. Yeah? You didn't want to be reminded of that, did you? Oh, come on, David, it's still Sunday. Give me a break. So I could say to you as you travel to work tomorrow, take the Lord with you. But that's a silly thing to say. Of course the Lord is with you. He's promised and covenanted to be with you and never to leave you or forsake you. But he speaks to us today to remind us that with his word in our hearts and his hand upon us, which is the same as saying the equipping presence of the Holy Spirit with us, we can work and succeed without compromising our faith obedience and conscience. Daniel had no congregation. He had no pastor, or old covenant language priest, you might say. He had fellowship with three other young men, but eventually they went out to serve in the provinces and he was left on his own. He had to stand alone. But he had learned to pray and to seek God and to receive God's answers. And God helped him again and again. And pagan kings, one after another, came to value him and respect him. That's what chapters 1 to 6 of Daniel shows us. His lifelong devotion to the Lord was a witness to that godless society. Let me remind you again three words to connect you with witness. Walk. How do we live in this world? What does our life look like? Works. What good do we do to the world? How do we serve and bless and, and honor and show grace and mercy? What works? What good do we do? And then lastly, and it is lastly, when they've seen us, when they've watched us, when we've done something good for them at some point, what words are we saying to this world? Is our conversation about the grace and goodness of God through Jesus? Or do we get on down with them and just complain and whine and 
just like everybody else. Yeah? Oh, yeah, it's terrible. Oh, yeah, it's terrible, isn't it? If we're just like the world, or on the other hand, do not engage with the world, we are, as Jesus said, with salt that's lost its savour. We're light that's hidden under a basket. Of course, the world today resists our bringing faith into the public space. How many of you remember Sunday school and you in your small corner and I in mine, yeah? Jesus bids us shine with a pure, clear light. Little hymn, kid, kids sing, I did, I remember it. That's what the world wants to do, so you stay in your corner. We don't mind you having your little church meeting and whatever else, but don't come and talk to us about this stuff. Keep your faith to yourselves, private. Well, how is it that you can have proud pride marches for just about every kind of thing under the planet, and yet if we're proud of, proud of being a Christian, we're told to get in our corner? That makes me mad, folks. I will not shut up. And now I'm getting aggressive, so I need to repent of it <laughs> and become more courteous. Sometimes I'm aggressive in private, but then courteous in public, you know. I kind of figure out how I'm going to say this and not quite like that, David. So, you know, I give myself a lecture. Come on, David, get your act together. You need to find a way of saying this. Jesus said, I received a command from the Father what to say and how to say it. And that second bit really, really hits me. What to say and how to say it. You can say the right thing in the wrong way and you've blown it. But by, if, you, if you ask God for wisdom, you can say the right thing the right way and you get somewhere. Yeah? Sorry, bits of wisdom along the way. Okay, where are we? I don't know how far we've got to go. We will see further tests, not far, for Daniel and his friends. We see further tests of their faith. What we see them come back to each time, whether it's Daniel and the three, or da- the three on their own, or Daniel on his own, is this. If we may not succeed, we will nevertheless still stand with the Lord's help. And I could add to succeed, even suffer, or we may not even survive. Because their lives were on the line in some of these tests of faith. Literally, they were going to die if they didn't compromise, if they didn't bow. But here's what faith says. If I can't succeed, I'll still stand. That's what the, the lobbies of, uh, for, 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 for pro-life are about, you know, anti-abortion. We may not succeed in our lifetime, in another generation's lifetime, but we will keep on standing and speaking on this issue. This is what we need to have written in our hearts, folks, as Christians, if we're going to have any impact on this current world. We may not succeed in our own lifetime, perhaps, you know, and some of, some of the issues that concern us, but we will still stand. We'll still make our voice heard. The world wants to Babylonize us. But we are the children of God. That's who we are. We, are, we understand where we are. I hope you understand. I've probably did blown away all kinds of nice, glossy, you know, pink spectacle ideas about the kind of world we live in. Well, it's not like that, folks. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but it isn't. Jesus himself said, in the world you'll have trouble, but cheer up, I've overcome the world. We are the children of God. 
We're in the world, but not of the world. We don't belong to it. We're the Lord's. We don't live for what the world lives for. We've renounced their values, their agenda, their philosophies. We don't follow simply another philosophy, the way that Greens and Radicals oppose the establishment. We obey the Creator, the higher authority. We invest the whole of our lives in His will and His purpose, looking for His eternal reward. We're not just a bit different. We're the children of God. We are to be, as Philippians says, blameless and pure, faultless and a crooked and perverted generation, shining like stars in a dark world. We're heading in a totally different direction to eternal life, not to destruction. We're on the upward path to eternal life, not the downward path to condemnation and eternal judgment. We treasure what the world doesn't and we don't find treasure in what the world does. So, God's word or gold this made that choice a long time ago by the way I could have stayed in business and accepted a directorship and uh, had my own company to run and all sorts of stuff I know whose I am I know who I serve and I know what I'm called to be and to do 1 John says familiar scripture do not love the world or the things in the world If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust, and this is New King James, so it keeps lust there, but better word, modern word is appetite. The appetite of the flesh, the appetites of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away. Maybe not tomorrow, but it will. It's going to go. It's all going to go up in flames and smoke. You know that, don't you? And the appetites that are in the world will be ended. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. The scriptures teach us that in this age, in this world, we Christians are pilgrims, aliens, strangers. This city is not our true and final city. I'm not saying we're about to move away from Harlow. This this world, this city, this society. Our citizenship is in heaven. To to, to coin a phrase I used months and months, even a year or so ago, this station is not our destination. This might be where we're living, but it's not where we're going. Our citizenship is in heaven from where we await our great God and Saviour Jesus. I've saved this scripture till last, and with this I'll finish, and Colin's going to lead us in breaking bread. Romans 12, famous scripture. just going to read it to you and then pray, because I need to stop talking. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable God to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, you put your words in our hearts and there is a call of God that registers in our hearts. It's a call to come closer to you, to find in you our true identity, our true reason for living, our true destiny. We do not belong to this world. We're not of this world. And we, God, you helping us, will not will not conform, will not agree to being conformed to this world. We're not made of the same stuff. We're not heading in the same direction. We don't have the same destiny. I pray that you'll write these things, Holy Spirit, deep in our hearts because they affect the choices we make. We do not want to be those who, by compromise after compromise, are being cut smaller and smaller as Christians. We want to be those who stand firm and strong in good conscience and clean heart, serving our God, our Lord. And while we don't want to be arrogant and proud, we do not apologize for being Christians. We will not back off from the things that we truly believe. And I pray that you'll put that spirit that attitude of heart that once was so formed in Daniel and in his friends. Form that attitude of heart. Not criticizing, condemning others, but standing firm in conscience to to refuse to conform. Put that in us too, we pray, Holy Spirit. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen.